Mr. DeWitt, he wants us to win all the time, and, and he wants us to have sort of franchise-type players. Like, that's part of what the Cardinals have. Is We have Hall of Famers on the field almost all the time, right? There's almost always someone who's a Hall of Fame caliber player on our team. That's part of what it means to be the, this, this organization. It's to be competitive every year and to have legit superstars on the roster. And so sometimes it works out really well, and I don't think anyone around here wants to give back the Goldschmidt or Arenado deal. And sometimes you watch Sandy Alcantara's 1-8 ERA and, you know, 200 innings already or whatever he's at, and you're like, oh, that one, that one kind of nipped us in the bud. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Joined this week from Bush Stadium. Are you at Bush Stadium? I am. From Bush Stadium. That's Vice President and General Manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, Michael Gersh. Uh, Gersh, thank you very much for joining me. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, this conversation. Do you introduce yourself as, what, a longtime listener, first-time guest? (laughs) <laughs> I, I think that's right. I think, uh, yes, I think longtime listener, first time uh, podcast uh, guest it would be would be a good description. So I, we'll start. I just want to jump right into it because we're seeing the, the fruits of the trade deadline as the team goes on a, a good stretch here of not just winning, but the backbone of it being consistent pitching whether it's Quintana against the Rockies or Montgomery in both of his first two starts, just the stability they've brought. Um, as that clock is ticking towards the deadline, how are things coming together on that deal with the Yankees for Jordan Montgomery? So, so that, that, that conversation was part of an ongoing conversation with the Yankees. I talked to Mike Fishman periodically throughout mm-hmm. the year and uh, specifically in the month of July, we had touched base several times. Um, I, we were aware that they were looking for outfield help. They were aware we were looking for starting pitching help, but we were both teams competing. And so we didn't have a ton of in-depth conversations because it didn't seem very likely that we'd match up, but we both like, like with all 29 teams, we're all, we're all trying to figure out each other's needs and excesses and wants and, and see if there's a fit. And, um, probably a day or so before the deadline when they acquired uh, Frankie Montas, it, it somewhat changed their outlook and their uh, need, their, their, uh, what they had to, to trade. And so in the probably 36 hours before the deadline, maybe 24 hours before the deadline, we, we got real traction on, on something involving Montgomery and Bader. And obviously it's a complicated situation. All trades are involving pitchers are somewhat complicated because medicals are always somewhat questionable. Although Jordan's been very healthy for the last, two or three years prior to that, he had Tommy John. So that's always a concern. And obviously with Harrison being on the IL, having not played in several weeks, you know, they needed to really get their heads around what that looked like going forward. And so, so that was a somewhat complicated process, but it, it wasn't like a mad dash in the last you know hour before the deadline. It was much more like a slow crescendo of like, yes, this is all going to work out and we're going to get this done. Oh, okay. So that's interesting because that might change like, the question that I was going to ask, because I wondered if you had to have two tracks going like, because if you're working on a deal that is going up toward the nose of the deadline or right there on the deadline, I've often wondered if you have to have an alternate deal that you can get done fast, or you have to recognize that you might leave the deadline without the person you want to add or the type of position player pitcher that you want to add. And, and you have to be comfortable with that, like that you might, 
come out of the trade deadline either with the one that you're working on or nothing. Yeah, I think practically speaking, it's hard to have like a backup plan that you can like mm. pull pull the cord on whenever you want because the other side probably in general is probably trying to trade that player somewhere else if they don't get the deal from you, right? So you're, I think part of part of why in an industry where we, we insist on waiting till deadlines to make any decisions is right. because everyone's balancing what the option their the opportunities are right and so as much as we might want to have a backup plan in case you know the medicals go sour on our on our deal that team who is our backup plan wants to get their deal done and start their medicals and make sure they get it done in time and so it's it's everyone tries to sort of keep as many balls in the air or keep as many plates spinning as they can for as long as they can but at some point you kind of have to you know, move, move in on something. And sometimes that does end up not working out. And then you're sitting there at the deadline going, Hmm, that's not quite how we were hoping this would go, but there's, there's only so much you can do. Well, what was the appeal of Jordan Montgomery, uh, a pitcher who, I mean, let's be blunt is not usually available from a contending team, especially a team with 70 wins. What, what was the appeal of him besides what I just said, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think like, like a lot of the other pitchers who were available to deadline, he was a, a, a very good pitcher who had control for another year. And that, that adds some value. I mean, obviously we like Quintana quite a bit as well, and that's a different price point and a different situation. But um, Montgomery is a, a young guy who's, who's been taking the ball consistently since the uh, pandemic season, who's performed well in arguably the best division in baseball. Um, and who who's who we we expect to be at you know at the top part of our rotation for for at least a year and a half and all the reports we had on him as a person were good you know the 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 metrics checked out you know it just he checked a lot of boxes for us and given the uh given the acquisition costs of, of some of the other options we we just felt like this was a, the best path for us how does a deal within the division change the conversation that's not one that you've made all that often, but Quintana was. Yeah, I think, I think, well, it kind of goes both ways. In some ways, I think the interdivision trading, like it, it, it's a little bit overblown. Um, mm. it, it's, but it depends on the type of deal you're doing, right? Like, and I don't want to say Quintana is a smaller deal, but he's a he's a rental player who we're trading a non top ten prospect for, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a little different if you're trading two of your top 10 prospects for a guy who's going to be on your, you know, on your team for multiple years and both sides have to stare at the other side of that deal for, for the next several years. Mm-hmm. It just, that dynamic feels a little different than, than smaller, um, you know, rental type situations or lower level prospects. It's just, I think the, the, um, I don't know, the, the way, the way teams look at, at, interdivision stuff varies depending on kind of how big the uh how big the trade actually is and it also depends on the you know each ownership group is different each front office is different each you know the the closer you are to both competing you Mm -hmm. know at at the same time the more awkward it is the more you're at totally different ends of the competitive spectrum the less of an issue it is so there's a lot of things that go into it but i don't think that was a big issue for us is there price is there price gouging sometimes in within the division because of that because they feel they have to either for how the fans perceive it or how the industry perceives it? It's really hard to know, right? Because the vast majority of trades that we explore, we feel like we're being price gouged on, right? That's why we don't execute them, right? We all, we're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And then we move on to the next deal, right? So it's 
it's hard to know. Obviously, we felt good about the cost to acquire Quintana and, and executed it, but there's other teams within our division and other teams outside of our division who asked for things that we felt like were, you know, like to use your term, price gouging, right? And mm-hmm. so I don't know that that means anything except for the perception of uh, value of players going in both directions don't always align. I mean, as much as people think that all of baseball uses the same framework to value players, like it's, I mean, it's not true. Like there's a lot of disagreement on what prospects are worth or what a particular prospect is worth or how to think about, you know, this or that. And so there are deals that you're just shocked at the ask. And there's other deals where you're like, oh, okay, we're close enough that we should have this conversation. So I, I wondered about that. I was told, gosh, this had to be years ago, um, but, but not like so many years ago that like the modern conversation of trades wasn't involved. Um, but it was this, this description that you, you can't say, oh, well, the Cardinals could have offered that same package for that same player because they didn't ask for that same package for that same player. They asked for a Cardinal specific. So like if uh, team X trades for star Y with the two of their top nine prospects, um, you couldn't say, well, the Cardinals could do that. Well, maybe the team didn't see the Cardinals having the same top nine prospects. And so you run into this thing where maybe the, the ask is so different that you can't really compare the trade packages. Uh, so I wonder, I wonder if you learn all that much, like if, if a pitcher that you were in discussions with goes to another team, do you learn all that much from what they got in return for him? So, so generally what happens is if, if we're talking to a team and, and the ask from us is, you know, whatever, two, two of our products, whatever, two of our guys that we think are quite good and highly valued. Mm-hmm. And then he gets traded somewhere else, almost invariably we feel like, well, our guys were better than those two, right? right. Because like, like it, that, that's usually the feel. If, if, if we feel like occasionally you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they gave that much up for the guy. I get why they went in a different direction. But most of the time you feel like, well, that doesn't, our guys were better than those, those guys. And it's just, it's, a, it's self-perception, right? I think most teams probably value their own guys higher than the industry because you know your players, you, you know which guys work hard and which guys, have a great attitude and which guys are pluses in the clubhouse and all that stuff. And other people don't. And so um, in general, you probably value your own players higher than, than other teams do. But it is, it is the, it is the case that to your point, when, you know, when uh, whatever, uh, uh, two players are traded in a, in a trade and one's, you know, a top 50 prospect according to baseball America and the other ones in the bottom, bottom of the top 100, mm-hmm. you can say, Oh, the equivalent players for the Cardinals would be X and Y, but that, that's equivalent in baseball America's eyes, right? Which is some right. amalgamation of the, of the industry. I mean, it, it, they do a good job, but it's not the equivalent of the, the team in, in particular. They, they might not like that player as much as baseball America. They might have a player at the same position. They might, it, it just, they might be looking for pitching, not hitting. It just, there's a lot of reasons where those, the equivalent deal from the Cardinals would have been, you can be like, yeah, that's roughly equivalent. That doesn't mean that that, that deal was on the table, right? You, you know, without being in the room, I don't know what deals are on the table with all the other 29 organizations. I only know what the deal option for us was. Right. And, and we, some, we make our decisions. And sometimes there's a centerpiece to it. There's not, there's a specific player that another team wants, not a type of player, right? Like if they're, sure. yeah, if, if they're pursuing with a conversation with one team, it might be like, Look, we just really want this shortstop that's your eighth best prospect. That guy's got to be in it. Whereas yes. with another team, it might be in more generalities. We want your top two, that kind of thing. There are definitely cases where 
uh, the, the ask is are all around the specific player. Yeah. And, and sometimes the ask is like, well, look, we'll give up, you know, whatever. We'll give you this rental reliever or whatever. And we want prospect X. So what do we have to add to our side to get prospect X? And you're like, right. wait, we're not really in the market to get prospects right now. We're trying to acquire, trying to acquire <laughs> guys to help us on the stretch. Like, I'm not sure we want to think about it in that direction, but, but hold on. Let me, let me see if we can figure out a way to, you know, piece this back together. If there's something that we like in your organization, but, um, but yes, it, it just depends. Every organization is different in how they, some come at you with like, here's the, here's the three players we like. We need two of them. Some come at you with, we want this guy. How do we make that happen? And some say, well, why don't you make us an offer? And it just depends on how teams choose to approach the, the conversation. Not just teams, but individual people at teams to handle yeah. things differently. So it, it's yeah. all about how the conversation goes. That's fascinating. You you said earlier that uh, in this industry of baseball, that deadlines spur action um, generally. And I find that part of it very interesting because needs don't have a deadline. They arrive when they want to, right? I mean, that's the way the game right. goes. There's, there's, there's no schedule to – you're not going to find out I mean, I guess you could kind of set your clock by a pitching need in June, but it's not, <laughs> I mean, it's not that straightforward. Why do you think that is particularly because this is two years in a row where you can make the argument that y'all made moves at the trade deadline for things you needed earlier? Well, I, I mean, the challenge is that as a team who's quote unquote buying at the trade deadline, mm -hmm. you are pretty sure that the longer you wait, the longer the player stays with that team, the price is going to go down. And that's almost always true. But the ask for the, on, on prospects, you know, a week before the deadline, what, what, what teams start out asking for is very rarely what they get, which is, which mm -hmm. is fine. It's like, that makes sense. And if you're a team that's selling at the deadline, you know that the offers are only going to get better as you get closer to the deadline, because just like anything else, like nobody, nobody wants to make an offer that looks stupid, right? You don't want to overpay, right? So you, 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 you just, keep saying no. And, and as a result, both sides feel like the pricing kind of reaches like an equilibrium when mm -hmm. people have to actually make decisions and anything before that one side has to convince the other side to make a deal. Right. And so it. it, unless you want to pay the premium to convince someone to make a trade on June 15th instead of July 31st, and, and nobody knows what that premium is. And, that team who's got the player isn't quite sure like, well, what could I get if I waited till July 31st when everyone's in the market? Like in order for you to, in order for you to want to trade them, you got to convince me that this offer is better than I, I could imagine getting, you know, six weeks from now. And so it's just, it's a challenge. It's, and it, it's the same thing with arbitration discussion. I mean, it's all everything, mm -hmm. right? Both sides, anytime both sides expect the other side to only move at the last minute. And we've as an industry just like taught each other that by waiting till the end, you get the best offer. And so we've now, got ourselves in this infinite loop where I know that you know that I know that I'm not gonna give you my real offer until the last minute and you're not gonna give the real ask until the last minute. So we're all just gonna, you know, jam in the last 48 hours before the deadline. Do you do you see a point ever where a need is so acute that you move quicker? I, I think back to, I mean, this is in the Wayback Machine, like 2009, there was a June trade for a third baseman for Mark DeRosa uh, in I think some of that had to do with the fact that probably Cleveland was declaring pretty early that they were moving on and had some, some players to trade, but so was the Cardinals opening it at, for a guy like DeRosa to come play. Uh, do, you, do you, is that sort of what you're describing that the need has to be so acute that it allows you to, to kind of maybe go one step beyond 
what you think the asking price might be at July 31st or August 2nd? Well, I think, I, I think like there, you know, like trades happen before mm-hmm. July 31st. They sure. just tend to not be the big pro, high profile trades, right? Fair, fair. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, so there are certain situations where the need and another team's roster situation match up where it makes sense, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. um, th- so it's, it's not that you can't get trades done, but it tends to be, where it benefits both sides, right? Like, oh, we have a young player. We want to get up on the roster. We're, you know, we're a, a team that's that's not going to compete this year, and we have a young player. We want to get at bats now. Uh, he's had a good start to the season, and we want to move this veteran out of the way to give him at bats. And oh, you had you need this. You have the same need for this veteran. And it's like, oh, okay, well, it's mutually beneficial for us to do this sooner rather than later, right? Okay. There's yeah. a lot of trades like that that happen. It's harder to go out and say, hey free agent to be starting pitcher who's, you know, you know, a, a top of the rotation guy that you can, you know, you can trade anytime you want to anyone you want. We want to push them, push the envelope and make it happen right now. Like that's a, that's a different conversation. That's where, that's where you're, you're chasing it as opposed to, you know, like negotiating from a position of strength. Right. And it's, it's a tough, it, it's not like you can't do it. It just is, it's just a different dynamic. So what, what's kind of, I don't know if lesson is the right word. I, I mean, there are similarities between last year and this year with the pitching depth. So how do you kind of look at that? Each year, gone out at the deadline, added two lefties. The need arrived earlier, um, and the team kind of patched things together. Uh, a year ago, it was Oviedo contributing. This year, it's been a little bit more of a committee before the, the two newcomers arrived. What do, you, what do you take from pitching depth and how to be proactive at the beginning? Can you be proactive at the beginning of a season? so that it's not every July, this search for at least two pitchers. So I think, I think two things. One is the, the, the majority of teams who are competing for a playoff spot, mm-hmm. I think trade for pitching at the trade deadline. Yeah. Like no matter who you are or how much depth you have or how good your stuff, that, that's part of like, that, that's going to happen. I, no matter what we do, I think most Julys we're going to be acquiring some sort of pitching help because you you just have plenty of roster spots. You got 13 spots that you can find. You can almost always find an upgrade out there in the marketplace for when you have that many spots on the on the in in your um, in your pitching staff. I think the other thing is, you know, adding depth. Ideally, we we would always have like redundancies and extra depth in the pitching staff because we know that there's going to be underperformance. There's going to be injuries. Things are going to happen. The challenge is signing players to be that depth is very difficult. Um, a guy like Quintana this offseason was looking to reestablish himself as a starter. Mm-hmm. So if his choice is to sign as the eighth starter for the Cardinals, because we want depth or the third or fourth starter on Pittsburgh or whichever other team offered him options because they have opportunity for him, you know, even if you offer more money, a, a lot of guys are looking for opportunities to reestablish themselves, and they they they're more worried about their next contract than they are this 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 one year contract this year, right? Yeah. And so, ideally, you you have your depth with internal players who have options and who have flexibility to do other things besides be a starting pitcher, because that way you're not trying to convince someone to come be your seventh or eighth starter. You're you're you have your five main guys, and then you have a bunch of you know optionable or guys who have experience in the bullpen or what have you that gives you that redundancy you need going into the season but that is a challenge as well because once you got a guy in the bullpen it's not always easy to transition them back into the rotation if there's an injury right and so Mm -hmm. we've had some success with that palante this year 
Um, but we've had a lot of other guys who were starters in the minor leagues who went to the bullpen and, and sort of never came back out, right? Just guys like Helsley and, you know, we, we tried it with Hicks. It didn't go as well. It's just, so it, it's, a, it's a difficult balance to have. We all want depth. We all want more pitching, but there are roster limitations. There's option limitations. There's the ability to actually sign free agents because they want opportunities that you may not have the ability to, to guarantee or even to like, even to offer them a legitimate fighting chance in spring training or, or they can look at your roster and say, look, I, you can tell me I'm fighting for a spot, but I can count to six before, you know, mm-hmm. before you get to me, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else. So um, that's, that's part of the deal. And, and what the, in exchange, you can wait till the deadline, identify the guys who are pitching, you know, performing well and are healthy and, and go get the ones you need then, as opposed to trying to do it before the season, not knowing which ones are going to stay healthy. You know, it's just, right. Ideally, we'd avoid it, right? Ideally, we stay healthy in the rotation and don't have to worry about it next July. But realistically, I expect it's kind of part of being a competitive team that you you spend your trade at the trade deadline. You're spending assets to acquire more pitching. I'm glad you brought up Quintana because that's the one is like because he cost as opposed to costing money in the offseason. He cost you players in July. The benefit that you got was, you like you said, you got to see the whole runway up to July and see where he is, see how effective he is, see if he's different and performing well. The downside is it costs you prospect. Were the moves for Verhagen and Brooks then in that way kind of building that depth? Is that, you know, the, you offer the opportunity to Verhagen um, and the opportunity to Brooks. Was was that kind of trying to establish maybe that that depth by getting guys who – weren't in positions to count rotation spots or were thinking that like, Hey, maybe I could be a swing man and that still gets me to the majors. Yeah. I think that was, that was part of the goal with some of those signings in particular was to, okay. to have some, some starting pitching depth with some flexibility. I mean, Aaron Brooks was on a minor league deal, which meant we didn't have to put him on the 40 man right away, depending on how spring training went. Mm-hmm. And Verhagen had, had been a starter, but had experience in the bullpen before he'd gone over, uh, to Asia. And so he offered us some opportunity to, to sort of see how it played out and, and see where we were. And, uh, obviously we, the, those have not worked out as well as we had hoped, certainly not as well as Quintana worked out for Pittsburgh, but, um, but yeah. that's the idea of, of signings like that is to try to, is to try to build that depth. You know, it's, it's, it's easy in July to say which guy you should assign for $2 million back in March. It's a little harder in March to identify which two or $3 million guy is going to be the one who's, uh, got a three, three, four ERA in July. That's kind of the job though, right? Like, right. Getting better at the probabilities that tell you who those are going to be is the job. A hundred percent. That's, that's all we do. That's all, all, all my job is, is to try to help us predict the future. I can't, I can't tell if you're being slightly facetious or not. No, I mean, no, I, I say, cause like sometimes when I talk to people, people like, ask me my opinion on like MVP voting or hall mm-hmm. of fame or all of which are interesting topics, but are kind of completely irrelevant to what we're doing here. Right. Like it's a right. much more interesting topic for writing and discussing and fans to, you know, argue over a beer or whatever, but, but it's not in any way relevant to what we're trying to do, which is decide who's going to do well from today forward. Right. Even like the fact that Quintana and Montgomery had pitched well up until we acquired them, is less important than predicting what's going to happen in August and September. So we're trying to predict going forward, not. So I think sometimes fans look at moves and they say like, Chris Stratton's ERA is five. Why would you trade for him? Well, 
there's some things that we think suggest that he's going to pitch better than that going forward, right? If they, if there weren't, it, it would be dumb. Why would we do that? But there, there's our, our goal. We don't just look at their stats year to date and say, these, these are the best players. We're trying to predict what they're going to do going forward. It, it, this is a sidebar, but I, I try to think of stats in three categories. One is predictive, which is what you're talking about. What metrics and what performance and what does scouts say about what this guy is going to be? Then there's qualitative, which is the strong numbers that show you actually what the player has produced, right? Like, so OPS is better than batting average. Slugging is better than batting average. Um, you know, wins above replacement would be one of those, you know, qualitative numbers that tell you what the guy has done. And then there's narrative stats. And narrative stats are ones that obviously have already happened and we kind of rely on um, without context sometimes, like wins, RBIs, things like that, right? And right. The, the stats kind of go in those three categories. And for a long time, Hall of Fame voting was done with narrative stats. We've progressed over the last you know, couple generations to making decisions on MVP and Cy Young and Hall of Fame now on qualitative stats. And still yet the game is getting better and better and better purposefully. And, and, I, and that's the goal with predictive stats like exit velocity and you know, barrel rates and things like that that show future production or expected, um, you know, slugging percentage based on things that we know now about the nature of contact and the nature of hits. So, I mean, that's essentially what you're talking about. No, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think, I think some people, I think some of the disagreement when, when people talk about analytics and, and, and baseball stats is, a, 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 is, is this difference between those different categories, right? Like, when some people say, look, RBIs don't matter. Well, they clearly do because they drove in a run, which is the whole right. point of the game, right? right? But they matter in telling the story of what happened yesterday. They Narrative. don't matter as much about telling what's going to happen tomorrow because it, it, in order to get that RBI, there probably had to be guys on base. And you know, there's a whole bunch of things that that player didn't control when he walked up to the plate that helped him get the RBI. And that doesn't, isn't as predictive of future uh, of what's going to happen next as, you know, his bat, his, his OPS or his strikeout rate or whatever else. Right. And so, you know, do, 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 do pitching wins matter? Well, yeah. I mean, like, you know what, every pitcher who has a lot more wins and losses is, is a good pitcher. Like that's yeah. just almost by definition, but it doesn't predict what's going to happen next because it, de it depends on the offense and the defense and the ballpark and scoring decisions and how the bullpen pitched and all these things that are not, as predictive about what's going to happen for that pitcher in his next appearance or his next 10 appearances or his next 10 years. So take me back to I'll, I'll roughly say 1980s, 1990s, Chicago, young Gersh is um, interested in baseball. What's your relationship with the game at that time? Are you devouring it through box scores? Are you playing it um, on your free time? Where does the spark light with baseball? So, uh, you know, I was, I was born in the mid seventies in Chicago. I, um, I played, both, man. yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. You moved out West. I stayed there for the, for, for a long time. So yeah. you know, I played growing up, obviously I, uh, I probably peaked when I was about 10 or 12 years old in terms of, um, my ability to pay attention when I was 10 for you know an hour and a half straight on the field meant that I was the starting shortstop and everybody else was you know throwing clumps of clay at each other and counting clouds and uh sometimes shortly thereafter everyone physically matured and was able to pay attention and they realized that the you know sort of short sort of chubby kid at shortstop wasn't really a good idea and I slowly 
meandered my way off the diamond altogether. Um, I would say my my passion for baseball is a combination. I, I'm I'm a math and analytics guy, so I I love numbers. I love I, I love breaking down things and trying to understand them in a in a more thorough way. And when I was probably about 12 or 14, we got Prodigy, which was an old dial-up before AOL, and they had a fantasy f- baseball um, product on the on the website. And I, an older brother and a younger brother, and the three of us all started playing fantasy baseball. And my younger brother drafted all of his favorite players, and my older brother did whatever he did. And I, I learned, I taught myself how to use spreadsheets in order to make sure I'd win. I didn't care who the players were. I just wanted whichever ones were valued the most by the system in place. And so that sort of took my mathematical analytical mind and and my you know i love baseball i love watching it i love going to games and that intersection sort of became the uh, fantasy baseball for a long time and then eventually i grew up and decided i want to try getting a real job in baseball and, and went from there where did when did it become like tangible that a career in baseball was possible uh you know i mean that you're at Notre yeah. Dame, um, or when did it like go like, oh, wait, okay, this is not just an attempt. There is actually a career here in baseball. Was it someone you spoke to that opened that door, or was it something you sent? No, so I was, so I, I was uh, working in consulting after my MBA program, and I think right around when I was in business school, um, the book Moneyball came out. Not the movie, the book. Yeah. And and read the book made me realize that like there was at least some movement, some thought about applying the things I had learned at business school and as a consultant to baseball decision making. And that, I think that was the thing that made me feel like this isn't a if I try this, it's not a waste of time. Like there's at least a spark here. I mean, when I was in when I was at Notre Dame, I had applied for internships at companies like Stats Inc. Stats Inc. Mm-hmm. is a, a data provider that at the time was based, I think, in Northbrook, Illinois, which is not too far from where I grew up. I mean, I, I could drive it, uh, you know, and I, it never worked out. Like I, I, I would apply, they would get back to me like in mid July. I'd be like, dude, I have had a job. I've been home for six weeks. I have a job already. Like I can't, I can't take this internship now. Um, but so. It, it was something that I had pursued lightly earlier on, but it really was when Moneyball came out. And I realized that like a kid who never played high school baseball and had no connection to professional baseball of any kind, at least might have a shot. What was the eureka moment for you that you gained the confidence then to send out hundreds of emails? Is hundreds fair to say dozens? Of yeah, I would say, emails? yeah, it was probably more like, probably more like 50. It was probably more like two per team, give or take. Okay, so um, yeah, so dozens of emails. I would say, I would maybe tell you like a slightly different Eureka moment. So I, I did this research project on the draft, um, valuing draft picks, looking at how much you paid in bonus and how much you saved by not having to go sign a free agent to, to provide that same production, you know, you know, for the next couple of years or whatever. Uh, valued, valued prospects, compared hitters to pitchers and college, high school, all this stuff. And I sent it out about 50 because it was roughly one or two per team. I really only got three responses and it was three assistant GMs who had responded, one of which was Mo. Mm -hmm. And I talked to all three of those guys. And when I had those conversations, this is while I was at uh, my consulting job. So I I had a consulting job. I had, (laughs) I had twin daughters who were about a year old and, uh, and I had these conversations and I just realized that 
I could talk to, you know how like when you're growing up, you think baseball players like mythical, they don't, they don't seem like real people. Like if you ever saw them like at a grocery store, you'd be like, what are you doing? Like you're a baseball player. You shouldn't be out in like society, like interacting with people. Yeah, that's how I thought about on Olympus with the other gods. That kind exactly. Of thing. That's how I felt about front office people. Like I, until I had those conversations with assistant GMs, I had no idea that like, man, I can have a conversation with these guys and not be out of my element. Like all the stuff I've read, all the books I've read, all the time I spend online reading about baseball, all the box scores I've stared at. I know enough to have a real conversation with assistant GMs. And that's when I felt like maybe this isn't like a total shot in the dark like maybe maybe this will work out and you know it was that was probably in that was probably right before the draft so probably like may of 2005 and mm -hmm. i did more work i talked to those same group of guys again i tried sending out another set of emails to about 50 people and i i still only had those same three real contacts and ultimately um in that off season between 05 and 06 i interviewed for a job at the cardinals and and uh and got an entry-level position here the uh the other riders they would poke fun at me because I started on the Cardinals beat in 04 and they were like, yeah, sure. Front runner, you know, you yeah. start with a couple hundred win teams, but I, I that you join and they win a championship. Yeah. It was, uh, sitting in the bleachers with a couple of my siblings watching us uh, beat the Tigers to win a world series very much felt like a wedding crasher. You know, you're surrounded by 40,000 people who have devoted their life to the Cardinals. And I showed up like nine months ago from Chicago and was just like, this is awesome, but I don't really feel like I'm supposed to be here. Like, I don't feel like I deserve this. So um, 2011 right. was very different because by 2011, a lot of the guys we had drafted in 06, 07, I was mostly involved in the draft early on. And John Jay and, and Craig and, and that whole group of guys, that Memphis Mafia, the Scalzo, all those guys had been guys we had drafted in 6 and 7 and 8. And so that felt very different. That felt like, you know. These are these are guys that like, I, I felt like I had a small part in making this happen. In 2006, I was processing expense reports for the amateur scouts. I had I had no part in what was going on. I just got to enjoy the ride and uh, and and literally enjoy the ride in in a uh, in the parade and whatnot. So did did all three of the assistant GMs that you spoke to, or all three of the baseball operations folks you spoke to at that time, did they all go on to run baseball ops for some? Yeah, time? yeah, all three yeah. of them. All three of them are, are I don't know, they're, I, I, I think all three of them are president of baseball ops, but there might be a GM title in there wow. instead of president. But, but yeah, they, uh, yeah, they, they've all, there are all guys that have been very successful. So what, what to you was something that once you go behind the curtain or you go and you see this secret sauce um, was different than you expected? Because I imagine the leap from doing studies like you did to then go into doing, like you said, expense reports, um, to being in a draft war room, to being on the phone for trades, that that's quite a leap. I mean, you're going from putting, you know, kind of putting the studies together and organizing them to then all of a sudden dealing with personalities, um, some arguments, I would imagine. Um, there, there's, there, that, there's a difference there once you're behind the curtain and you're building an actual team for sure i i think there's i think there's a couple things like one is the personalities and 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 human beings are involved right like mm -hmm. I, I you know the first time i was involved and and by involved i mean like tangentially involved but like part of the group making a trade and and we like did the trade and then like 
someone had to go tell that player that he and his wife and kids were leaving, right? They had to get on a plane and like be somewhere else tomorrow to play in a game. It's just not like when you played fancy baseball on Prodigy when you were a teenager, right? Like right. these are real people with real emotions. And, and that guy has friends on the team who now are disappointed their buddy's leaving and other people are excited because that means there's a playing time opportunity for them. And that, that part of, of um, like the re just the reality of, of what it means to make these transactions and to change people's lives, it, 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 it weighs on you in a way that's very different than when you're, you know, some consultant who's got a theory on the best way to, uh, to, you know, to, to trade this guy and that guy in order to, you know, improve the roster by, you know, two, 2% or whatever. So um, that's definitely one thing that you appreciate when, when you actually get involved. I think the other thing is that I've learned more about as I've done this and I've watched really how Mo does it a lot and, and, and how other people like Flo and Gary and other people is, is like the managing of the people who are involved. Um, you, you it, it there's not it's not always the case where everyone's on the same page with every decision right mm -hmm. and and if you don't you have to you have to give people you have to people have to stay motivated to be part of the organization to feel like their voice is heard to feel like they're they're an important part of what we're doing and weighing weighing the different opinions and weighing how to combine those and how to how to make those decisions it, you know again we're, we're not we're very rarely are we in a situation where it's like a 90 10 there's a right decision and a wrong decision it's much more like 55 45 or 51 49 right like, huh. and so, so there's a lot of times when you're trying to like make a decision and it's not like you know it's not clear that there's a right or wrong and and there's people on different sides of it and they're making good points and you're trying to sort of manage the process and manage the people and and still arrive at what you think is the is the best decision for the organization that Again, it's just more, there's a lot more to it than, you know, when I was a consultant sitting up at night, you know, building a spreadsheet to value draft picks as though they were, you know, they, they might as well have been stocks or bonds in my spreadsheet, right? They weren't human beings and they weren't right. people and there, and there weren't, there weren't four, air, four scouts who had, you know, driven across the country who had different opinions on the player who, some of whom know his parents and some of whom were best friends with his head coach and everyone has different angles on why they think it's the right or wrong choice for the team and, it's just, it just, it's very simple when you just have a line in a spreadsheet and no context and all the context adds color and makes it more interesting, but also it adds complexity. What, what role does, be, and I appreciate you like bringing out the human element of it. The, the other side of that that's kind of beyond the spreadsheet is how you define a franchise, not just for the moment, you know, like the endorphin rush of a big trade or a big signing but for years to come. And I think specifically about like, you've had some pretty high profile trades here recently. Um, you look back, you have the, uh, the free agent signing of Matt Holiday many years ago, but since then there's the Goldschmidt trade, there's the Arenado trade. And then most recently, I, th I think it, it's been well reported and I don't know how much you want to acknowledge it, but the conversation at least with Washington about a generational player and Juan Soto, these are significant deals that you could see there'd be immediate headlines. There were immediate headlines. There were immediate success or, you know, or you looked at your team differently in, in the two trades that were completed. Um, but taking into, but as those trades are happening, you have to take into account how that radically alters your team for multiple years. Right. For sure. I think, I, I, I think there's, there's, there's a lot that goes into the biggest 
the biggest trades, the ones that that end with hundred million dollar extensions or uh, absorbing hundred millions of dollars of someone else's contract or what have you. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are those are beyond uh, a spreadsheet, right? That's that that's about how that player is going to fit in the organization, in the uh, in the clubhouse, how that player, you know, how that fits into our long term payroll, about how uh, you know Mr. Dewitt is looking at. Mr. DeWitt, he wants us to win all the time and, and he wants us to have sort of like franchise type players. Like that's part of what the Cardinals have is, I don't know what the streak is. I, you might know, but like we have Hall of Famers on the field almost all the time, right? There's almost always someone who's a Hall of Fame caliber player on our team. And that's, yeah, since and, and that's, yeah, and that, that's like, that's part of what it means to be the, this, this organization. It's to be competitive every year and to have, and to have, you know, like legit superstars on the roster. And so, Trying to trying to you know solve that is it, it, it's a challenge of how much of uh, you know like how much of tomorrow's production you're willing to trade for today, right? And sometimes it works out really well, and I don't think anyone around here wants to give back the Goldschmidt or Arenado deal. And sometimes you watch Sandy Alcantara's one eight ERA and you know. 200 innings already or whatever he's at. And you're like, Oh, that one, that one kind of nipped us in the bud. And so it's, again, we're not making slam dunk decisions. You're hoping to be come out ahead of them more times than not. And I feel like net net, even if you include the uh, Ozuna deal along with the Arenado and Goldschmidt deal, like, yeah, like we're okay. Like it's worked out fine in in totality, some of them better than others, obviously. But um, those are the decisions that we're always fighting with is, you know, People, yeah. our fans want to win today, but our fans also want to win every year, right? Yeah. And and like the math doesn't work to constantly be trading future performance for today performance because at some point you're going to get to that future and have nothing left, right? And so balancing that is always a challenge. And I mean, look, the the people in the front office here want to win the current year as bad as anybody. Like most of us don't have perpetual contracts or anything, so. Right. You know, the fans who are listening are going to be, you know, fans of the Cardinals much longer than I'm going to be employed by the Cardinals, right? And so in some ways, their view should be longer term and mine should be shorter term. But the reality is that we're all trying to stay competitive year after year, put ourselves in a position to win the division every year, put ourselves to compete for the World Series every year. And and that requires a balance of, of today and, and, and the future. And, you know, we rely on people like you know, Randy Flores, the amateur scouting group, and, and Moises Rodriguez, the international group, and, and Gary LaRock and the player development group to keep that pipeline going so that we have this this future production that we can trade when we need to. Because you, you, you got to have those guys all working, you know, at a high a high level to keep the, keep the chain moving. In some ways, Azuna is an example of that trade that we discussed earlier where there is an urgency of it, but no deadline. And so... You, you know, you, they, obviously it was the Marlins had the three outfielders that they ultimately traded, but your need was clear for the cleanup hitter. And so that was, that, that's kind of what we talked about. You, you touched on the winning the division. Um, that, you know, that's been talked about a lot. Uh, your manager, Oliver Marmol, has ratcheted up a little bit, said that there's 29 teams that don't win a season and there's one that does, and that's the one that wins the World Series. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the message that he sent. Has the goal to win the division changed because of the structure of the postseason? Where now winning the NL Central still comes with, a, you know, a title, but it doesn't come with the same seeding if you're not one of the top two. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the the change in the postseason is something that 
that changes the value of all the different uh, playoff spots, right? It, it, mm -hmm. it moves things around a little bit. Um, for sure, winning, you know, getting that first round buy, which I think we're calling it a first round buy. I, I don't know how, I don't know if we've all like, figured out the terminology yet, right? But like right. being with the top two teams in the, in the league and getting that first round buy is obviously hugely valuable. Um, even if you're not one of those teams, winning the division and being the third division winner gets you three home games in, in the, uh, whatever we're calling that first series. I, I'm not, I'm not up on the lingo. The wild card run? Yeah. Even though we're the, we're the division winner in it, hopefully. Um, yeah. but yeah, three, three home games for a three game series is, is a meaningful, first of all, it's a big advantage on the field, but it's also like a lot more fun to say we made the playoffs and had home games right. than to say we made the playoffs. We flew to some other city and, you know, we, we, we won the first game and lost the last two and you guys never got to see us play a playoff game, right? Like that's just, that, that's a little, that's a little, uh, a little sour taste in your mouth if that's how, how it goes. So, um, but yeah, winning the division guarantees you home games in the playoffs in a way that being a wild card does not. Obviously the, uh, the, the, you know, getting one of those first, the top two spots in the, uh, in your league would be more beneficial, but um, it, again, it's it's the fine line, right? The the we want to be competitive year after year after year, and if 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 chasing the number two spot and and a first round buy uh, comes at a long term cost that means that it might affect our competitiveness down the road, then then there's a little trade off there, right? And if we we feel like look, our short term goal as we start the season is to win the division, and once we've won the division, then we will go from there, right? But Get it, get into the division, win the division guarantees you a playoff spot, guarantees you home games, guarantees that you're in a good spot to have, a, to, to, to compete for, for a world series. And that's our goal. Is the, is the postseason too random to judge or is that starting to change too? When you look at an NLCS schedule that has five consecutive games and yeah, we, favorite pitching depth. Yeah. We were talking about that yesterday. The, the, uh, <laughs> the, the schedule is different than uh, than it has been in the past. So yeah. um, I, again, I think I think in some ways we need to see how this all plays out. I, I think we we all know that this is not the NBA where the best team beats the worst team ninety five percent of the time, right? Like mm -hmm. you know, even even the best teams are going to lose sixty games or fifty fifty five or sixty games, and even the worst teams are going to win fifty five or sixty games. So um, it, it is it is there's more uncertainty in short seasons in our sport than there are in most other sports. It is not a crapshoot. I, mean, I don't think anyone pretends that the, that the last team to qualify and the team who gets the first round by are equally likely to, you know, reach or win the world series. That that's, it's not a true crapshoot or, you know, a purely a roll of the dice, but there's a lot of uncertainty and, you know, being, being in a position to be in the playoffs as often as possible with as good a team as we can, that keeps that, that long-term goal of always being a competitive team and, and always competing for the division puts us on, we think in our best spot to, to bring home as many titles as we can. Gersh, thank you very much for this time. I know uh, you're, you're, you're there at Bush stadium and there's a lot to do. So I really appreciate the, the time you took for this conversation. Um, I don't know if you'll listen to this episode, <laughs> <on the podcast. laughs> but, but I, I do appreciate that you, that you took the time to do it. And we've talked about this for years about, about having this conversation and I, I, I appreciate your candor, and I hope uh, the listeners got something from it. I, I enjoyed it, Derek, and uh, I hope people did too. All right. I, I will see you at the ballpark later. All right. Great. Thanks, Derek. 
Michael Gersh joined the Cardinals organization before the 2006 season, and he moved his way up through the front office to become the 13th general manager in club history. He was promoted to the role of vice president general manager in 2017 and has served in that role ever since. Thanks to him for joining the podcast. It's something that we've talked about through the years, trying to find the right timing. The best podcast in baseball can be found at stltoday.com, along with all of the constant Cardinal coverage. You can find the best podcast in baseball anywhere you get your podcast. Anywhere, really. We're just everywhere. The best podcast in baseball is brought to you by Closet by Design. And remember, it's only as good as I get the feedback to tell me how to make it better. The best podcast in baseball now in its 10th season exists really because of the community that has grown up around it and helped influence it and shaped it and made it something that has become a weekly part of our Cardinal coverage. Hope you enjoyed this edition of the best podcast in baseball. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned, stay informed, stay healthy. Talk to you soon. Thank you.